to the Dietitian Values Podcast, a space for conversations that go beyond lip speak, challenge the status quo, and hopefully create a space where we can learn and unlearn in connection and community. Join me, Laura Jean, accredited practicing dietitian, as I brained up my thoughts, chat with insightful guests, and create a space where we'll probably end up with more questions than answers, but also a space for encouraging and inspiring accountable action. Let's dive in. So today um, I'm chatting to Katie Kurtz and Katie is a social worker and trauma specialist. Her work centers around trauma-informed trainings, coaching and mentorship Um, and Katie does a lot of work holding space for others who hold space and redefining what that means through a trauma-informed lens. So Katie, um, I'm really kind of feel really honored that you're here to be in conversation. Um, Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here and have this conversation. Great. So let's kick off. I mean, obviously that's a little blurb around your work, but I'd really like to hear, or I'd I'd love to sort of hear about your story there, um, like how you just sort of describe your work and what sort of brought you to where you are or where you find yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I'm a licensed social worker, and I've been practicing for the last 12 years uh, as a social worker, specifically specializing um, on the intersection of trauma and resilience. So I um, I live in the United States, and I know social work, counseling, coaching all takes kind of a different. Uh, it com- comes in different forms depending on where you where you are in the world. Uh, where I live, it's it's a highly regulated field, and so that's what uh, my area of focus over the last twelve years has been. It started off as um, direct care, so working with individuals and families who experienced uh, complex trauma, so offering um, trauma therapy, uh, and my career has moved in many directions. Um, I ended up finding my niche kind of in training and education and around trauma-informed care. Uh, And about six years ago, I uh, completed my certification as a a life coach with the Beautiful You Coaching Academy and was able to really utilize coaching Uh, creating my own coaching practice, uh, which was very connection-centered, using um, a trauma-informed space-holding methods uh, for other other people, and also utilizing my coaching skills to enhance the work I was doing in social work. Uh, And about a year and a half ago, um, thank you, uh, global pandemic, I really was... um, I really felt called to create a little more freedom with my two worlds. I kind of one foot in, in my social work world and one foot in coaching. And I really wanted to blend the two to find more freedom in my own creative expression. And so I continued to lead trauma informed leadership training uh, with um, one of a nationally kind of renowned trauma recovery center and a healthcare system here I live in Cleveland, Ohio in the U.S., um, and I also have my own coaching business um, where I lead trauma-informed trainings, workshops, mentorship, and consulting, specifically with professional space holders, so folks who 
may not be familiar with trauma-informed care or they're starting to hear more about it uh, and being a qualified trainer offering that. So a lot of coaches of all kinds, wellness professionals, entrepreneurs, creatives. Excellent. And something that um, as, as people build more awareness around, like you say, you know, people are just sort of starting to become more aware, build more awareness. I mean, that work and that support is so helpful. Um, and so important um, and I'm at, and obviously with your mix of skills as well like having the social worker role where you work directly with um, people who've experienced trauma and then bridging over into the coaching role where it's more that where you know for most coaches it's more that trauma-informed type approach um, could you speak to and I know I've really gained a lot of clarity around this from following your work um, around that kind of the differences and the nuances between that kind of spectrum from, you know, trauma awareness right up to actually, you know, supporting folks who have experienced trauma. So, and, and what, yeah. kind of, how people move yeah. across that. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think a few things to just help kind of create some shared understanding first and foremost is uh, again, Roles like social workers, counselors, and therapists take different meaning depending on where you land in the world. Um, some uh, some countries are more regulated than others or require certain amounts of training and ethics, et cetera. Uh, but it's important to note, too, that not all social workers, counselors, and therapists are trauma-trained uh, or even trauma-informed. And just because I am a social worker and, and did a lot of my beginning and my career in direct responsive care, trauma care, uh, I don't function in that role. I, I, um, I consult on occasion uh, in, in, in some circumstances, but my role is specifically as a trainer and educator. So with that being said, my role as a trainer and consultant and, and guide really helps is focused on helping people better understand trauma competencies. And so there are um, a, four types of trauma competencies. Uh, the one we're probably most familiar with is the term trauma-informed care. The reason why we're familiar with that is uh, in the 1970s, uh, when a lot of uh, veterans were returning from Vietnam, the Vietnam War to the United States, uh, they were coming back with significant, uh, having experienced significant trauma, and it was manifesting into post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And so a lot of research and a lot of mental health and social service care was wrapped around those folks. And, and this uh, practice or approach called trauma-informed care was developed, and it has evolved over many decades. Uh, and uh, again, I can only speak from my lens in the Uni United States, but it is now um, a model that is rooted in human and he health, human and social services. It's an evidence-informed practice, uh, and it's typically uh, the competency level we're most we may have heard of uh, if you are somebody in wellness or health. Uh, we typically see that more common in social services, but we're starting to see it more in healthcare. And then again, um, you know, we're seeing it more in other fields as well. So, uh, but what's important to create some distinction around is that knowing that trauma exists uh, doesn't mean you're trauma informed, it means you're trauma aware. So that's where we kind of start with competency trauma awareness 
means that I hold an understanding and I hold some knowledge of what trauma is. I understand, um, you know, trauma, kind of the basic understanding of it. I understand some of its impact, its ubiquitous or pervasive nature. However, being trauma aware doesn't mean that it doesn't really include anything much further than that knowledge. It doesn't include any training or skill development to integrate that or apply that knowledge into practice. Most people are, are generally trauma aware, right? We've, we've collectively uh, have a have some knowledge around or have heard of things like post-traumatic stress disorder or, or trauma because of the media or have read a book or an article. So I wouldn't say everyone, but uh, I would say a lot of folks are trauma aware. The next level of competency is trauma sensitivity. I, I personally um, teach this as trauma mindfulness, uh, but this next level is, okay, I'm aware of what trauma is. I have this trauma awareness, but then I have a little bit of additional, maybe skill development or training on how to integrate that knowledge into ensuring I'm sensitive to and mindful of the lived experiences of others. Now, this may not be a formal training. It could just be that you, maybe you read a book or you went, attended a workshop or you've done some pr personal practice around expanding that view or lens. However, again, this doesn't, if, if you have this expanded viewpoint of compassion and empathy to understand people have these lived experiences of trauma, it doesn't necessarily mean though you've gone through some sort of guided training or skill de development for active application. The next level of competency is that trauma-informed competency level. So this means I have that trauma awareness. I've been, um, I'm trauma sensitive and I've gone through some sort of training with a qualified trainer on how to actively apply these practices to honor people's lived experiences, uh, and humanity, which includes trauma and to resist harm. Uh, now the, this is where, uh, we want most people to be. This is ideal. This is where, especially if you're a professional space holder of any kind, it would be really ideal to be in this place, going through some sort of training, knowing this isn't a rival, but an evolution. What's really key about this, uh, understanding this level of competency though, is this does not mean that you have the ability or the qualification to respond to other people's trauma or address it in any way. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you have this ability now to train other people because there's a lot of depth and nuance to being trauma-informed in that level of competency. And then finally, the last level of competency is uh, trauma responsive. So these are our social workers, our therapists, our somatic practitioners, our healers, those people who have had considerable experience, formal training, specializing on supporting others in their own healing, recovery, or resolution of trauma. So this, again, these are, are people who have had, uh, you know, ongoing learning, ongoing training, mentorship, apprenticeship, who are the people who are, who are devoted to holding space for others to heal their trauma and address it. So I, um, I like to create a lot of clarity around these competency levels because it's not, there really isn't an entity or kind of a lot of discussion to decipher these different differences between the different levels. And what 
why I emphasize it, especially I emphasize it in all the trainings I do, but I especially emphasize it in unregulated fields like wellness, business, and coaching. It's because sometimes people may misinterpret and think they're trauma informed when they, and then think that either that means that they can then dig or address or talk about people's trauma. And that's not the case. And it could create a pathway for harm or re-traumatization for other people. So I like to create a lot of clarity with these competencies. And I appreciate this question because it helps kind of decipher where people land and demystify what these terms mean to help us create some shared language and understanding. Thank you. That's super helpful. And I think for, um, for the dietitians and other, you know, health and healing, helping professionals listening, I, from my conversations with most dietitians, I feel like that's probably almost the hesitancy comes in the other way of dietitians not feeling like, you know, feeling like that's really outside of our scope of practice um, and particularly feeling quite hesitant to, um, you know, to, to take things, you know, to, to cause harm particularly, um, and to do things around that. I think for most dietitians or for a lot of dietitians that I support in my work are working in what's called like, you know, non-diet space. So working with people with a lot of disordered eating, with um, habits, with eating disorders and very generalization, but usually some element of trauma. I mean, you know, um, so I think for most dietitians, they can be hesitant, but I'd It'd be great. I don't know if you have, if you'd be happy to talk around that or how for clinicians, particularly practitioners, clinicians to, to kind of find their space there. And if they're wanting to, um, you know, move between those, those kind of spaces or those kind of, you know, from trauma aware to trauma mindful or from trauma mindful to trauma informed, just feeling more confident in where they're at and their skills, um, yeah, around that sort of scope of practice piece. Um, is that that be something you'd be happy to talk yeah, to? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I always, uh, because everything we talk about related to our humanity and trauma is so nuanced, I always like to create some shared language and understanding. So when we say scope of practice, we're describing um, what our set of skills, services, responses, all of those things that are kind of within our personal competency and boundary as a professional. And so uh, for clinicians, practitioners, uh, dietitians, again, uh, I full transparency cannot speak to the specific scope of practice of dietitians, especially folks um, in different countries. But I do know that most folks who have gone through higher education and specialization in a certain field have a more set or regulated scope of practice that is sort of governed or overseen by some sort of governing body, whether that's a licensure board, a, a uh, either like a national or state-based or territory-based, um, you know, governing board or, or stakeholders board, where there's sort of established guidelines, best practices, ethics, et cetera. Uh, and then there's unregulated fields. So coaching is a really, um, probably our most accessible and tangible example is that the coaching industry is an unregulated field, meaning there is no governing body. There are some best practices. We have the International Coaching Federation or ICF that definitely has done a lot of work to support the coaching industry, but it it's, you know, you could wake up tomorrow, say you're a coach and 
there's no one saying you can't do that, right? And there's no uh, set forth kind of expectation for training, ongoing training, supervision, et cetera. So what's really important uh, with this question you have, which I love, I love talking about scope of practice because it's so key in being a trauma-informed leader, but I often um, come with a lot more questions than I do answers. So a lot of my questions when it comes to the scope of practice for anyone listening to this who may feel hesitancy, who may feel um, concerned or just needing more clarity, the few questions I would really focus on is, first, what, what is your scope of practice? Have you clearly outlined what's within your scope and what's outside of it? Creating that distinction is super important, not just for you as the space holder, practitioner, et cetera, but also so that you can be sure you're clearly communicating it with your clients, uh, your patients, your stakeholders. And then the next question I would really encourage people to do is exploring and getting curious about what the best practices and guidelines are within your industry, whether it's regulated or not, being familiar and up to date with what the best practices are, evidence, informed practices, whatever that may be within your scope of practice. And then from there, starting to be, again, I always say opt for curiosity over judgment, starting to explore, okay, with it, with my scope of practice, uh, you know, what, what has been my training? Uh, you know, okay, I've had formal education, great. Have I committed to continuing and ongoing learning so that I'm up to date, um, that I'm continuously staying engaged in my continuing education efforts. And on the flip side of the training, uh, are these trainings from reputable sources? Are the people I'm learning from, uh, you know, are they practicing within their scope? Have they communicated that with me? Um, Are they qualified? And from there, I also would encourage people to explore, you know, what's your accountability plan? How are you staying accountable to ensure you are continuing to function in your scope of practice? Again, staying in that lane. And what happens if you find yourself teetering on the edge or even going outside of that? Um, how are you resourcing yourself? How are, do you have mentorship? Do you have supervision? Do you have peer support and community? And What's really important here when we when it comes to resisting, reducing, and repairing harm is that we want to be sure we're we're looking at kind of harm prevention or reduction up front. And one way to do that is very clearly communicating your scope of practice to your clients and communities you serve. And not just kind of a one and done, but how are you communicating that verbally? Are you communicating that through any type of content on website, social media? How are you communicating that through group or space agreements and also through contracts so that it's repetitive, it's very clear. um, And so the people you're working with understand your role and expectations and there's no, uh, you tighten kind of those potential pathways for harm to occur. um, And one form of harm being intentional or unintentional, usually unintentional, kind of going out of that scope of practice. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that kind of process 
aspect of it, yeah. Because I think sometimes, um, I don't know if this is similar in social work fields, but definitely for dietitians, we are often looking for that, like, you know, black and white answer. Yep, okay, this is how I know, this is how I don't know. But I think, and, you know, we're very comfortable with questions around here. Well, everyone's comfortable with, um, used to me asking lots of questions. But I think that's helpful around that whole really articulating the scope of practice and so importantly communicating that really um, strongly and like you said repetitively Um, and through that through that lens of resisting harm or reducing harm um, and starting from there and something I'm often talking about is sometimes the first place to start with that acting with less harm is to accept that we will do harm, that having those things in place that, you know, the cycle of um, maybe going back into our scope of practice if we have done harm and how we can readjust that to reflect more clearly where it is um, and also, of course, supervision and spaces where we can hash stuff out, where we can get support, where we can get another person's um, support to get that questioning and analysis going and build that into our frameworks Um yeah, that's really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's a big part of the work I do too, is really, I think, especially for folks who have, who are just either starting to become aware, trauma aware, uh, that there is this uh, almost like gripping in the bodies and kind of in their nervous systems of like, oh gosh, I don't want to cause harm. And there, there's some fear around causing harm. And, um, you know, and how human of us. We first of all, our human brains really love either or thinking. We love clarity. We want that contrast of, you know, black, white, either or, good, bad, because uh, it helps us figure out how to navigate the world around us. However, when it comes to things like our humanity and trauma and adversity, it's very nuanced and it's very much the and both. And therefore, it can be really uncomfortable. We can often be left with a lot of things unanswered and it causes us to really have to practice discernment, uh, which is, it's definitely a muscle we have to to practice flexing. And one of the things I always like to demystify is that, uh, uh, and I'll quote one of my, my teachers, Andrea Renee Johnson, is that, you know, to harm is to be human. And so kind of like, okay, let's drag the elephant into the middle of the room and say like, yes, we are human. Therefore we're going to cause harm. We can't avoid it. We can't perfect our way out of it. Uh, And we can't lead our way with fear around it. We have to just accept that it's going to happen. Now what, what are we going to do about that? And I think one of the biggest things around uh, being trauma informed and, and the way I, again, the way I teach Um, trauma-informed leadership and trauma-informed space holding is really equipping people with the knowledge, skills, and tools to reduce, resist, and repair harm and to integrate and apply things into their practices. So it really, again, closes those potential gaps and pathways for harm to occur. And really naming harm, like let's talk about it. Let's name it. Um, I offer a lot of personal context and examples to help folks better understand it. Um, as somebody who's done this work for a long time, I've absolutely caused harm. I continue to. What matters though is being able to recognize it, be open to course correction, learning, unlearning, um, leaning on uh, mentors and peers to help me process and, and kind of uh, grow from that. And then taking accountability and self-responsibility to uh, ensure I don't cause it again. And when we think about our scope of practice, uh, one of the big things I think 
that causes or drives fear is that when we are met with a situation or a client, I'll use the example of maybe a dietitian working with a client who has disordered eating, but it's directly related to trauma, that can definitely be a tricky situation to navigate. And I think that's where discernment, mentorship, and peer support is so important for that dietitian who's kind of teetering on that edge is also to recognize too that um, it is not a personal flaw, flaw or failing if we're unable to offer a service or respond to someone because it's outside of our scope of practice, right? Uh, we're actually doing a great service to people and our clients when we are really enacting those boundaries within our scope and then having that ability and that kind of checking of our ego to refer out and having, uh, you know, equipping ourselves with those list of referrals or encouraging those clients and, and just naming, you know, I'm noticing you're bringing up a lot here regarding some of your trauma processing and resolution. I want to be sure you're you're working with a, a qualified counselor and trauma therapist. Uh, I think if you're not, I think that might be a really supportive thing to explore. Uh, and and having those conversations, but making sure you're really clear with uh, yourself and the others regarding that scope of practice. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think. Most dietitians, like I was saying before, are probably on that more hesitant side and, and that importance of, of referring out and the collaboration piece. But I think the piece probably that is more more newer, n- new or newer in our, particularly in Australia, I know, is around the supervision. And I think that normalising that is a really key part of that um, that whole cycle of um, what you were saying before. Like I liked that idea of, yeah, reduce, resist, repair. You know, it's like a kind of feeds back into itself and creates a space where we can move through some steps and we can move ourselves um, through like, yeah, so it's not just that, you know, do no harm, which can keep us stuck, but okay, we reduce the harm as much as we can. We resist the harm by having that really nice clear scope, um, having supervision, et cetera. And then when harm does occur, because it will, then we repair. Um, And then the, the learnings from that can come back into our reducing piece so we can go, okay, well, is my scope tight? Am I communicating that well? Have I got that supervision in place? Have I got all those pieces there to reduce harm? Yeah. So I really like that kind of, um, that, that way of sort of thinking about it, um, versus just that whole idea of, yeah, do no harm and like, okay, then what? (laughs) Um, Right. Like, okay. And then, you know, if we're leading or holding space for people with that fear, it's going to create it's actually just going to create more harm because it's going to create a barrier between our ability to hold space, to build trust with other people. So the more we humanize harm, the better. We don't want to uh, normalize it in a way that, uh, you know, lacks accountability by any means, right? When I say, you know, we're going to cause harm, now what? It doesn't mean like, let it happen. It's just a part of life. Like, no, we have to take active accountability and responsibility for the harm. And there's a lot of different types of harm. Uh, And most of it, again, is, you know, with a lot of good intention, but it's when, like a lot of harm, uh, when our intentions and our impact are unaligned. So what are we doing as professional space holders to really ensure, and this is where that resisting piece comes in, to align our intentions and impact. Uh, and that's why uh, tra- having a trauma-informed lens is actually super supportive to the space holder and not just 
who they hold space for, but themselves, because you're feeling equipped with these different skills and tools to actively integrate and apply and and practice that kind of beautiful cycle you described there of reduce, resist, repair. Uh, And that, uh, and having that ability to seek out those mentors, those supervisors, those peers, that community Uh, You know, I'm a big believer we can't hold space for other people unless we're able to hold space for ourselves. And as space holders of all kinds, especially dietitians, wellness professionals, we need we need those people to hold space for us, too. Right. Because we're we're above all else. We're human first helper second. Mm, Absolutely. And. Yeah, I think that, yeah, building that connection, building that community is such an integral piece, um, particularly um, I find for dietitians who are in the entrepreneurial space. So we often get trained um, and, you know, in our practice, our early years and in multidisciplinary teams, in that kind of, you know, in, in a team of maybe more than one dietitian where there is sometimes traditionally or historically built into spaces that, that space holding within like a team or a crew. Um, depending on obviously the culture but when you're out there working by yourself that's not always there so it is really that conscious um, decision and actually taking those active steps to build those relationships around that so yeah yeah, that's really really important Um, I would probably hesitate well I'd probably guess generalize that most dietitians or a lot of the dietitians listening because they do come from that non-diet spaces as a whole would be somewhere between that trauma mindful sensitive and potentially wanting to move into the trauma-informed or perhaps they're sort of on that toehold of the trauma-informed space and wanting to just continue to maintain their their skills and their confidence and competency what are sort of some of the like practical steps or even just questions or um, awareness building that you would encourage people to do to kind of to move in through that. So to 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 go from being trauma mindful and sensitive into trauma informed and for people who are sort of starting out in the baby sort of steps of being trauma informed to like continue to build their competence and confidence. Yeah. So I think there are, uh, there's a few things folks can do. Uh, I, again, I'm going to come at this with um, more questions uh, to consider. And I think what's important here to remember is if we, uh, when we identify and self-identify as being trauma-informed or leading something that is trauma-informed, that's like a signal. That's like we're waving a flag saying, hey, everyone, I have taken uh, con- I can have taken considerate time, effort, and energy to actively apply a trauma-informed lens to what I do. And that means what, if I'm looking around and I see that kind of flag waving or that light being shined, I'm like, oh, there's a person that I feel like I may be able to build trust with or feel brave enough to show my humanity with or someone that um, I know it's a signal to others that they know um you know, that that person is ethical um, and humanity affirming. So we, which is really wonderful. We want that, right? Because we know what's possible when we can show up in our full humanity and be brave, et cetera. However, if we aren't actually qualified trauma and trauma-informed trained and have that uh, integration and application, we may be um, not necessarily, we may be signaling to others the wrong thing or 
virtue signaling, if you will, that and that could be mis misinterpreted. So some things to consider if you feel like maybe you are, um, you've had some experience, maybe you've read some things, you've been to workshops, or maybe you've had some trauma-informed trainings and you want to continue that, which is awesome because I always say you can't say you're trauma-informed, you have to be it. And it's something we have to, you know, we can't just one and done workshop, right? Like you can take a class, a yoga class, an art class, and you're not going to nail it in 45 minutes, right? You're, you want to continue to practice just like any other skill. So some questions I would uh, pose for folks who um, are resonating with this piece of this conversation is the first one being, have I completed any type of comprehensive trauma-informed training with a qualified educator or trainer? Uh, when I say qualified, um, you want to be sure you're learning from somebody who has had some experience doing this work, right? So, uh, you know, it's, and that may look differently for everyone, but I want to know when I'm learning from somebody that who did they learn from and, and what kind of experience and qualifications they have to be teaching you this because this work uh, is so nuanced and, and sensitive. Uh, you know, what the next question I would have is, you know, what uh, kind of skills and tools beyond knowledge and that awareness piece, am I actively applying to the, the spaces I hold and the work I do? You know, how am I integrating this um, every day? And how am I continuing to, uh, you know, again, look at and work within my scope of practice, um, you know, engage in continuing education? I would also say, and I say this a lot, that we can't be trauma-informed if we're not also addressing our own level of privilege, biases, and hooks into systems of racism and oppression. Uh, being trauma-informed does not equate to being anti-racist or anti-oppressive. Those things are um, meant to be done in tandem. And so I, I'm, I would also encourage people, and I always encourage people to be doing that kind of lifelong work in tandem with trauma-informed training. So those are the big things I would look at. Uh, I do think that um, most people, I, I'm thrilled to hear that you think most dietitians, especially in Australia, are lingering in that trauma-informed space. Uh, that makes me really happy and excited because I know um, as somebody, I do a lot of work in healthcare uh, here in the US, and I would say the majority of folks in healthcare are not trauma-informed. Uh, I think they're mostly trauma-aware uh, but again, trauma uh, in healthcare usually comes with that medical or physical injury definition, and we're not actively applying that trauma-informed lens into practice and integration, which is, we're getting there. Uh, I do a lot of work with healthcare providers to, to try to change that because uh, being in any, you know, any part of healthcare uh, is very vulnerable and uh, we need folks to be as trauma mindful and trauma informed as possible. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm definitely talking mostly to the the kind of bubble or subset of dietitians that I yeah. um, work with, which is more in the non diet health at every size um, disordered eating disorder space. I think because probably because of that work, um, and once you start looking at those systems around um, diet culture and around health at every size and those kind of principles, once they start to come into your consciousness, I think it tends to be something that is, it kind of gets picked up in that because the real roots of those is around centering people's humanity, um, lived experience, et cetera, which 
it's not always the case. I don't think that that leads into some awareness around trauma, you know, trauma mindfulness. But I think from my experience, and perhaps I'm generalizing incorrectly, <laughs> but from, you know, that that the dietitians in that space are kind of in that more in that trauma mindful space and would like to be trauma informed. I think a lot of the thing that holds people back is that fear of of doing harm in that mm. in that space between trauma informed and trauma um, responsive, um, which most dietitians yeah. definitely know they're not that. <laughs> and most dietitians yeah. within this subset of dietitians, I'm going to say dietitians, but I mean non diet dietitians. Most dietitians know they're not trauma responsive. And they're in that kind of trauma mindfulness space, but I think would like to feel more confident and competent, you know, within that holding space um, for humans, because it does enter the room, you know, when we're talking about eating disorders and disordered eating, when we're talking about supporting humans, you know, to trust themselves around food and their bodies, then, then often, yeah, trauma enters the space in that, enters that conversation. And Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that, uh, I appreciate that clarification for me. And I think that hearing a little more about, especially that non-diet dietitian, that you're right. It sounds like most folks who have had a little more training around the, the more expanded lens of empathy around, you know, people's health in a way, maybe even looking at like social determinants of health and people's lived experiences and histories and mental health, especially as well, that they're probably falling in that trauma sensitive, trauma mindful realm. Uh, and where I would love to see more folks uh, in the field is get to that trauma-informed space. Again, because if fear is the barrier, again, being trauma-informed uh, really equips you with those skills and tools that dissipates that fear. Uh, now, I can't say every trauma tra- trauma-informed training offers that uh, because What's, uh, of course, tricky and nuanced here is the traditional trauma-informed care model is uh, hasn't had a, a good update in a while. It, it consists of six main concepts or, or pillars, uh, and those are uh, safety, trustworthiness, and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, choice, and then that cultural, historical, or gender issue kind of. Um, lens. And those are all really, it's a really strong, like I said, um, evidence-informed practice and approach. What um, I teach and I appreciate the traditional trauma-informed care model. Uh, The way I specifically teach it, though, is expanding it into that space, like you said, that space holding. Uh, Because what um, I see both within trauma-informed leadership and, and space holding is that we need, we get the the why and the what down really good, but we don't focus as much on the how. And I really want to equip people with that those tangible, practical skills and tools they can integrate. And what I find with the folks I work with is once they start to get introduced to those concepts and they apply it, that fear begins to lessen and their that lens expands because not only now are they holding space for others through that lens, they're also holding it for themselves and it becomes very re- reciprocal. Hmm. And could you 
sort of, I suppose, speak to that a little bit more, Katie, or even just some more, again, practical tips or, or your thoughts or even just those questions again, because like I said, we're comfortable with questions around here, around so taking that that holding space for self and um, part of that I imagine is things like, you know, our own personal achievement and regulation as practitioners and those sort of pieces. Um, would you speak to that a little bit more and maybe some, yeah, like either an, some inquiry for, for us as practitioners or even some tips or steps to to build our, um, yeah, to widen our lens or our, you know, tolerance in that space? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll, I'll speak to two different things. So I, uh, I'm i generally teaching folks kind of in that, that creating that bridge from being trauma sensitive or mindful to trauma informed. And like I said, I do believe we, when to be actively trauma-informed, we need to go through some sort of comprehensive training so that we can actually get, build out that lens. Uh, I, I can, If you think of like a pair of glasses, you know, we have that lens that we wear, we, we make sure that our prescription's up to date, those lenses are clean and scratch-free. That's like what we want to be doing for being trauma-informed. We want to tend to it and attune to it. So I teach trauma mindfulness with um, within a framework called the five R's. Uh, so that's recognizing trauma exists and the pervasive nature and having that trauma awareness foundation. Um, regulate, um, which you kind of touched upon. So being able to regulate our nervous systems as a space holder so that we are coming in and creating a co-regulated space. So when I say um, you know, regulation, I mean the practice of being able to uh, you know tune in to our nervous system uh, and be able to uh, monitor, manage, and shift um, our thoughts, feelings, sensations to a, a place of neutrality. When we're, when we're co-regulating, that means we're doing that with, with other people where we have one or more people through relationship and connection where we're able to kind of find that co-regulation. And uh, what matters here is that if I'm coming into a space, even if I came into this podcast, if I were dysregulated, meaning um, maybe I was frustrated or anxious or, you know, had a long day or just kind of buzzy and not in a kind of regulated space, I could come in here and you, even through this recording, your, your nervous system would mirror that. And then we start to have sort of a dysregulated space, right? But if I'm coming in grounded and anchored, it actually gives your nervous system that ability to, to um, mirror that. And then we're co-regulating together. And especially because we are living in a global pandemic, no matter what you believe in regards to the reality of the last two years, uh, it is a pandemic and pandemics historically are what we call historical trauma. It's a it's a, tra- a collective trauma that happens in our timeline of history that has both a collective and individual impact on, on people. And so we're living in a very unregulated times because there's so many compounded stressors with the season of life we're in. So practicing regulation is so important when we hold space for ourselves and others. The, the third R is that realign. So realigning our, our lens, realigning our intentions and our impact. You know, trauma disconnects us from our sense of safety. It, it uh, overwhelms our nervous system and, and really breaks that connection from our sense of being able to access safety, security, and stability in our body and being. So as professional space holders, as trauma-informed 
trauma mindful leaders, it's um, we have this ability to help people reconnect to that. So ensuring our spaces are brave enough and strong enough for people to enter, that we have consent and choice, that we're infusing pace, uh, we're that we're not in you know making things feel urgent or too much, too fast, too soon. And then lastly, resist. So resisting harm. What are we doing to ensure we're identifying potential pathways for harm, uh, that we know how to resist it, and that we know how to repair it when it happens? So that is when I teach a trauma-mindful workshop. So that is what I focus on in that workshop that gives people a solid foundation to lead with that mindfulness lens and apply it. Trauma-informed takes it deeper. Um, it means we're really looking at that, uh, all of those things, but in a deeper way, we're looking at, um, how we communicate, how we set up our space, our facilitation and space holding techniques, what consent and choice even is, and how do we integrate it and apply it across our practice. Um, we're looking at personal attunement, which I believe is the core of being trauma informed and what looking at all those different regulation and co-regulation tools. And then um, again, like harm reduction and leadership. That's, yeah, that's a a good way to, well, good, you know, helpful to kind of look at that, the, the slight nuance between those two spaces, that trauma mindfulness and then trauma informed, how that looks different. And then thinking about it within those, all those pieces that come together, which is, which is really helpful to kind of hold. Um, yeah. For sure. I always like to think of trauma mindful too, as like, it's being, it's like similar to general mindfulness. We're being mindful. We're being considerate. We're expanding our compassion and empathy. So we are maybe dabbling and applying some of those five R's trauma informs taking it. And it's an active lens you're applying across your practice actively all the time. So it's a much more um, secure, stable practice that you infuse um, throughout the culture of the work you do. Mm. And speaking to that too, like one of the things that I'm myself, you know, my work has been working on and something I'm really interested in, in kind of, you know, having more conversations around is that trauma-informed piece and how we bring it, um, continue it out of like the clinic space. I think a lot of the times we're, as practitioners, maybe like, you know, aware of how maybe trauma, mindfulness informed stuff happen, you know, why and how that is important in, you know, when we're working one-to-one or when we have a group. And one of the spaces where I feel like there's maybe a gap or an opportunity really is to bring it even further into actually our practices, particularly for people in, you know, who have businesses, who run businesses as dietitians or are other helping professionals around, okay, so how do we, how do we create spaces that are trauma mindful or trauma informed from that very first like you were saying before you know signaling to to humans we might want to work with you know within our copy within our our messaging within the ways we the language we use in marketing and sales and all those sorts of pieces and so that's an area I'm really interested in do you um I think you cover that a little bit in some of your work as well What's sort of your take on that area around how we take it beyond just thinking of it in that kind of like more narrow lens of like showing up as a trauma-informed practitioner versus, you know, trauma-informed or trauma mindfulness or even trauma awareness, you know, um, across all all of our work from, you know, that very first maybe sighting a human has with our work to going through those steps of working with us or whatever it might, however it might play out. Yeah. 
So I'm a big believer that everyone can be trauma-informed and I believe everyone deserves trauma-informed care. And I think we do a great disservice and we aren't actually being trauma-informed if we're not living this out loud again across and applying it to the lens through which we're living and leading out loud. So I see this a lot and I and I hope we start to shift this uh, in our culture of the work we do is that we compartmentalize trauma-informed care and we just apply it to the clients we work with, but then we don't apply it to how we treat and care for ourselves and we don't apply it to the people on our teams or our, um, our you know, the people we work with or, you know, our business practices. And I think it's really a lens we can apply to everything. Uh, and we, we can do that. Um, it, it's, you know, trauma informed sounds so clinical and, and, you know, specific and it's not, it's, this isn't, this isn't that hard. The reality is, is when I teach, uh, I have a signature program called Cultivate. And so trauma-informed space holding training. And what often happens is I get a lot of different space holders in that um, training. And a lot of people are like, oh, I actually do this. I never realized this was trauma-informed. And now they, sh- they continue to do a lot of the practices they have. They just shift it under that lens. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's very common. And it also affirms what you may already have been doing. And it also just reminds us that we, um, we can't compartmentalize this. Like once you know it, you know it. And, and it's inc- the way, again, I can only speak for the way I teach it. Uh, it's, it's meant to be applied across everything you lead both. And what people find out is it ends up really not just impacting their professional work, but their personal work, their relationships. Um, and it can really transform how you connect and relate to others and to yourself. I think what's really important to acknowledge too, uh, and I'm sure you have seen this in your industry and your even just on social media, is that a lot of people are starting to talk about trauma. A lot of people are starting to talk about trauma-informed training and practices. And I as someone who's done this work for a long time, I'm thrilled. Like I'm, I'm loving this, right? The more we can make this mainstream, the better. Uh, I, I believe this being trauma-informed is not just for people who work in healthcare or mental health care or wellness. It, it can be applied anywhere. And I have seen it applied everywhere. Um, but what's important to really just dis- to create some distinction here is that trauma is not a buzzword. Uh, it's not something that's just becoming trendy. Uh, trauma, and and I know you and your colleagues know, it's a very real and life-shifting response that individuals have. And uh, trauma-informed care is not a fad or a trend. It's an evidence and research to research-informed practice. And it's been a, or it's been around for a while. It's just newer to coaches and business world. Uh, so I do. Uh, I don't. I guess I should say I don't necessarily teach a trauma-informed business uh, workshop or training. However, I do talk about that in Cultivate, the trauma-informed space holding training I teach. Uh, We definitely go over it because if we're going to set up our space and invite people into the space we hold, a lot of times we need we do that through marketing and sales and business practices, and we need to be looking at the way we communicate and the way we sell. Uh, And we can absolutely. do all of those things uh, through a tra- our website copy, our social media, our contracts. Everything can be done through a trauma-informed lens. And I 
work with a lot of business owners uh, and consult and, and support them in integrating a trauma-informed lens across their business. Yeah, I mean, I believe that too. I mean, it's a real foundational part of my work is to think about how we take that. Um, I'm not teaching anyone to be trauma-informed, of course, because I'm not qualified to teach people to be trauma-informed, but about how we apply those lenses and, and as we start investigating, like you know, you're saying before, investigating and being aware of our bias and things, and then how we can just keep all that stuff in front of mind as we look across that stuff, our marketing, our copy, et cetera, and, and how we show up in spaces. So that's helpful. Um, one thing I was thinking and one thing that I really – I suppose, like um, about or, or one thing that's different that really stood out when I was sort of looking at your work and um, I'd love um, love to sort of hear a little bit more about it is something you talk about is around trust, um, mm. around like kind of like that concept of don't trust me. <laughs> not that you're telling people not trust you, but you know like that whole um, I suppose it's around the, the idea that trust is earned um, or trust is built, cultivated. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in your language around that as, and rather than me grappling for words. Um, but that difference between possibly what's traditionally been kind of underlying for, for health practitioners, particularly the more mainstream regulated ones, um, like dietitians would be part of that social work, where trust is kind of like bestowed or um, or we feel like, you know, traditionally that it that it's it's a given. Um, but I, I really like your take on that. So I'd love um, if you'd be happy to talk to that a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Uh, I feel like every month I have some sort of communication to everyone just to remind everybody if they're new to me, like uh, just because I'm here or I have a lot of letters after my name or I've had a lot of experience and specialize in this work, it doesn't mean you should trust me because I don't believe trust is assumed. It's cultivated, it's built, uh, and it takes time. And when we uh, rush to assume trust in somebody, and the reality is sometimes we have to, if we have a medical emergency and we have to get surgery or go to the doctor, we're, we're putting our trust in that person, whether we know them or not to help save us or fix us, right? However, when we're looking to work with someone or even just follow someone on social media, we need to practice that discernment of not just assuming trust because they have a lot of followers or because they make a lot of money or they have a lot of experience, but we want to create space for that relationship to build. And why I emphasize this so much from a trauma-informed lens is that uh, if we are a trauma-informed leader, we want to create spaces for you to build trust with your potential clients, community, uh, people. Because when we're able to uh, naturally and organically build trust, we're able to create space and expansion. And when there's space and expansion, there is room for autonomy and self-determination and agency and consent and choice. And that creates a non-hierarchical relationship. It, it does not assume authority. Uh, and we see this a lot in the business, uh, especially like traditional business world or techniques. Uh, and then it's rendition of kind of the girl boss era where all of these really manipulative tactics to sell or market or engage, especially in social media, assumes authority um, or assumes kind of that no like trust mentality. And what can be harmful there is that we're not leaving room for 
uh, discernment and we're not leaving room for nuance and conversation. And we are assuming authority. And when we assume authority, we create natural hierarchy, which creates a power dynamic, a power over dynamic. Uh, and to be trauma-informed, we need to, to create a power dynamic that's power with, that we are with people um, and that it's collaborative and co-creative. And that's, uh, that's how I lead. That's how I teach. I am not an expert. I am only an expert in who I am and you are only an expert in who you are. And so the way I teach and train and lead this work is yes, I have a lot of education, qualifications, experiences, awards, etc. But I am not going to, um, use that as a tool to make you think you can trust me. I'm going to create a space in which we can build that, that it's not you and me, it's us together. And it's going to be co-creative and collaborative and uh, that you, I trust, I trust that you're going to engage with me in this space in a way that is best for you. Uh, And, and something that I also, I very much teach that I've, um, is that I can't, the reality is I can't hold safe space for people. I can't make people feel safe because what feels safe for me may not feel safe for you. And each of us has our own barometer and our own sense of what safety feels like. So to assume you're you're just automatically going to feel safe around me is actually quite harmful. What I can do is ensure my spaces are strong enough, brave enough, and empathetic enough to ensure that you can come into my space, whether it's on my website, my social media, a training, a mentorship, uh, and you can access that internal safety. I love both of those pieces, that piece around trust, um, speaking my language there around the non-hierarchical stuff and how we, yes, challenge those ideas of manufacturing authority and trust and even just relying on that, yeah, trust that is kind of being um, conflated with education um, or or sort of, status, you know, that sort of hierarchy, that status. So I really appreciate that. And that last piece that you shared as well around um, safe spaces, I think as people start to move into this area, there's that desire to want to, yeah, do no harm. And the extension of that becomes, I'm going to create safe spaces. But I think that's a really important piece to that is that we can't, um, yeah, we can't guarantee other people's safety. Um, and I really appreciate how you yeah, broadened that idea of space because, again, I think of sometimes we can think about the space we hold is just when we're sitting with the human or humans, um, but the space we hold is our website. It is our social media page. They are all the spaces that we are holding. So it, it, it goes across that. So I really appreciate that, that piece there. Yeah. That was really helpful. Thank you, Katie. Absolutely. So I think that that is um, a really, I suppose, a, a, a great place. I could talk to you all day and ask questions and pick your I brain know, right? and, and, and <laughs> invite your questions and analysis too because I think it's so helpful. I mean, anyone who's been hanging around um, in my spaces knows that I'm big on questions, you know, big on us asking ourselves questions and reflecting. And, and so I really appreciate all of the gold that you've shared um, in our conversation. Um, yeah. We'll wrap up. Um, if people, um, anyone listening wants to learn a little bit more about you or check out some of your offerings, where's the best place for people or places, spaces um, for, for them to connect? So I feel like Instagram is my front porch looking out to the world, especially in this, this pandemic time. So uh, I love connecting uh, and having deeper conversations over on Instagram. Um, folks can find me at um, it's underscore Katie Kurtz. Uh, and then Katie, 
katie-kurtz.com is my web home. Uh, and so if anyone listening feels like they want to engage in any um, further connection or learning around trauma-informed leadership and specifically trauma-informed space holding, I do offer some on-demand workshops. Uh, I have, um, again, Cultivate is my signature trauma-informed space holding training, uh, which I'll run again in the new year. Um, I have some some blogs, just um, some information on, on, again, going beyond that traditional trauma-informed care model and really expanding it and deepening it into under into trauma-informed space holding. Excellent. And I'll add all of those links on the show notes so people can um, check that out over at dietitianvalues.com. Um, you can check out the podcast show notes there um, to get the links to Katie's work. And I highly recommend following, and which I'm sure you will be doing after listening to all of the gold that Katie shared um, here. Well, unless you don't want to listen to somebody else give you more questions, of course, but <laughs> I think they're <laughs> valuable questions. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Katie. I truly appreciate it. And I feel really um, honored to have been in conversation with you and just dug into this a little bit today. It's been really, yeah. really uh, nourishing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and connect with you. I always am like, should I start a podcast? Because I'm like, I can't, I'll just talk forever because there's so much to talk about. And that's why I'm so grateful and honored to be invited in in spaces like this to uh, look at specific, you know, even just the world of diet, dietetics and non-diet dietitians, like there's so much we could explore. So thank you so much. I'm grateful we're connected. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I highly recommend starting a podcast. I started mine because yeah, I can't shut up about this stuff because I'm talking about, it. <laughs> you know, I love being in conversation, but I just love talking about, you know, just taking stuff that bit deeper because I'm similar to you. The Instagram is where I love to hang out and love to start building those connections. And then you kind of want to go a bit deeper. And so I think I, I, I highly recommend you digging into the podcast world. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I have had two podcasts in the past and I love it. Uh, and so there might be something in my future because like mm -hmm. I said, there's so much nuance with this that we need to have more than just the you know, characters and squares on Instagram, we need more conversation and dialogue. Mm, yeah. And that space that, you know, and continuing your, the, the amazing ways that you are holding space, I suppose it's just another, another part of that. So we'll, uh, we'll yeah. watch this space then Katie, maybe <laughs> we can, we can <laughs> we'll look out for it. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you get on with your evening or possibly head off to bed. And thank you for who um, for all of you tuning in. I really appreciate you um, and the time that you've given to us today. And until next time, bye for now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you and the time you've given to me. If you like what you heard, please share it with your dietitian besties and subscribe on your platform of choice. Want more like this? Come follow along and continue the convo on Instagram where I hang out at Dietitian Values. I'm so grateful for you and the opportunity to connect. Have a good one. Catch you next time on the Dietitian Values Podcast. The Dietitian Values Podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging.